You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Let's open our uh, Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 6. We have uh, been going through the book of Daniel as it has been a part of a larger series entitled She Who Is in Babylon, but we're no longer in Babylon. We're in Persia now, as of last week. And we have come to chapter 6. And when most people think about the story of Daniel in chapter 6, the lion's den, they uh, maybe think back if they were exposed to Christianity or introduced to Christianity as a young child, it takes you all the way back to your Sunday school classroom because the story of Daniel in the lion's den is a, a staple of all children's Bible curriculum. But it's not just a story, it's a historical event that took place at the beginning of the reign of Darius the Mede, who we saw last week defeated Belshazzar and the Babylonians. And uh, so one kingdom went out, another kingdom came in overnight in a matter of time. Daniel is in his, his late 80s at this point. He has seen that over and over. God raise up one kingdom and God bring down another. God raise up one king and set down another. But through all the ups and downs of human government, he has really only served one king, and that's the king of kings, whose kingdom will never fall, whose dominion will never end. Daniel, above all, I was impressed this week to realize that above all had a heart for God. And he lived each day before the face of God. He lived his life in the presence of God, and therefore, here he is, 80-something years old, and he is finishing his race well. It is a rare thing today as it was back then for someone to finish their race well, but it can be done. Daniel did it. And Daniel did it because he engaged the struggle to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He engaged the fight to love God from the heart, not become passive. He lived every moment before the the presence of God, and, and he served God with all of his heart. And that's what we need to do, no matter what our station is in life, no matter what we are called to do, no matter where our life takes us. Ultimately, we are here on earth to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we come to the close of that in Daniel's life this morning in verse 1, chapter 6. It reads like this, it pleased Darius to appoint the 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities the king that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now like previous trials that Daniel has faced, this trial begins with a promotion. 
And this promotion is really kind of the first domino to fall in the whole sequence of events that once again leads to Daniel's vindication and, and God's praise. When Darius assumed the, the rulership of Babylon, the first thing he did was to decentralize the power by appointing 120 satraps, those were kingdom protectors, um, over all of now, now, no longer Babylon, but Persia. And of course, this added layer of government increased the possibility of corruption. Anytime government increases in size, so does the possibility of corruption. I need to say no more. So to keep the 120 satraps from skimming the tribute that belonged to him and ultimately to his boss, Cyrus, he appointed three administrators over the 120 satraps, and one of those administrators was Daniel. It wasn't long before the exceptional qualities, verse 3 says, of Daniel prompted Darius to uh, consider and to plan to put him in charge of everything which infuriated the other two administrators and the 120 satraps and prompted them to plot an insurrection against Daniel by trying to uncover some character flaw in his life that would disqualify him from this promotion. And so the whole plot unfolds in verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to, unable to do so, so they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Basically, what they were trying to do is find a place in Daniel's life where he was like them, immoral and unethical. They were trying to find a place in Daniel's life where he was negligent, where he was morally or ethically sloppy. But Daniel was a guy that dotted every I and, and crossed every T. They could find no fault in him. Their investigation turned up nothing, except here's a guy who's very faithful to his God and the law of his God. And faithfulness to God, of course, always trickles down to faithfulness in every other part of our life. You will find if there is a lack of faithfulness or integrity in one part of our life, we can trace it all the way back to our relationship with God. And so, they realized the only way to, to destroy him was to manufacture a conflict between God's law and Persian law. In other words, they sought to undermine his position by pitting his loyalty over, to God over against his loyalty to his employer, the Persian government. So verse six, these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all, say all, agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that everyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the decree 
in writing. Now, this decree, and particularly the haste at which Darius signed it, okayed it, revealed that although he was in a position of considerable authority and power, he apparently was fearful for his popularity among the satraps. They come to him with this crazy idea, and he just signs it just like that. There had to be something else going on here. We see that in the fact that he, he neglected, as all the other kings did, to verify this claim, hey, we're all in on this. No, they weren't. Daniel wasn't. He was one of the administrators, and he didn't know anything about it. So when they come to him and they say, everybody thinks this is a good idea, he should have gone, what do you, when did we meet about this? So he doesn't consult his wise men. He doesn't consult his favorite wise men. He simply quickly signs it. I suppose this not only exploited Darius's insecurity, but it also appealed to his vanity. I mean, to be the sole object of 30 days punishable by death in a lion's den. But the fact that it was only for 30 days should cause you to go, why only 30 days? I mean, if the guy's a megalomaniac and all he wants is worship, why only 30 days? Why not just make it a law forever? But it's only 30 days. Why is that? Well, you have to understand in the ancient world, every kingdom was made up of multiple cultures. Each of those cultures had their own gods. They were polytheistic civilizations. They didn't have one God. Only the Jews had one God. They were monotheistic. So they had all these gods. And so when, when Babylon or the Persians conquered one people after another, they just brought in their gods. And everyone could still worship their, the gods they started out with. But ultimately, you had to be loyal to a central god, a central figure. And so it wasn't uncommon for emperors to consider themselves godlike and to temporarily call for the sole worship of the people in their kingdom for a period of time to identify disloyalty and to unify the kingdom. And so that's exactly what Darius is doing here. And this presents, of course, a conundrum for Daniel. If he obeys the law of man and he prays, to Darius and is disloyal to God. But if he disobeys the law of man and prays to God, he breaks the law of man, is disloyal to Darius, and is subject to the lion's den. Which way will he go? Of course, there were other options too, right? We can think of those just right now. You know, he could have just simply hidden his praying, right? He could have just Gone under, underground, undercover with his prayer. But to Daniel, hiding the expression of his faith actually devalued his faith. See, if my faith is the most important thing about my life, then to hide its expression would be to say that it is not the most important thing in my life, the most valuable thing in my life, because whatever the thing that made me hide it has become more valuable to me. The fear of man, the fear of persecution, the fear of loss, the fear of suffering. So if your faith is the central thing in your life, then to, to privatize it would be to devalue it. If it's the most important thing, it's impossible for it to stay hidden. It's not that you flaunt it, it's, but you don't conceal it. If it's the most important thing and the most central thing, then it is part of you so much so that you cannot help but 
to live it out. You can't take parts of it and set it over here and over here and over here. You can't compartmentalize those things if it's the most important. You know, in the past, you used to hear people say that all the time. They used to say, well, my, my faith is a private thing. Well, it can't be Christianity then. What faith are you, by the way? Baha'i? Confucianism, right? Can't be Christianity. No, by nature, genuine faith is, 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 is at the center. It's who you are, and therefore, therefore, it really can't be hidden. And again, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean you're obnoxious about it. But you don't conceal it either. You don't conceal the most central thing in your life. You know, it reminds me of the story that was recently in the news about an assistant high school football coach named Joe Kennedy. He was fired for praying with uh, other football players, or he was a coach, they, he was praying with the players. At the 50-yard line after the game, you see this oftentimes. The cameras will never usually go there. Once in a while, by accident, they'll show people praying at the 50-yard line of a high school or college football game. But a lot of times it happens, and it started out with just him himself. After the game was over, everybody shook hands. He would just walk out in the middle of the field, kneel down, say, thank you, God. Just thank you. I just want to honor you. I want to thank you. Pray for these guys, these football players, and so forth and so on. And then eventually people from the team, other players, would not coerced in any way, just of their own free will. Hey, could we join you? Sure. And then what happened is players from other teams would join. And this would happen year after year after year until 2015 when the school district told him to stop. He refused. He was fired. He eventually sued. Seven years later, his case finally made it to the Supreme Court, and lo and behold, the Supreme Court actually upheld the Constitution. That public prayer is still protected under the First Amendment. The school board agreed to pay all, this, all of his legal fees, which were quite hefty, and also to reinstate him. That's all he wanted. He wanted no compensation. He just wanted to be reinstated as the assistant football coach. This last Wednesday, he took the field for the first time in eight years. Now, all because he just couldn't privatize his faith. See? And likewise, Daniel refused to privatize his faith. But there's actually one other thing Daniel could have done. He, he didn't hide his prayer. That would have been an option, but he couldn't do that. But the other thing Daniel could have done to avoid the, the lion's den is simply take a break from praying. He could have just simply stopped praying for 30 days. I mean, he wasn't being asked to bow and worship an idol for the rest of his life like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. He's not even being asked to worship Darius. He's simply being commanded to not pray to his own God. That if he was going to pray, he had to pray to Darius for the next 30 days. But the notion of not praying was just unimaginable for Daniel because prayer for him, man, it was his lifeline as an exile in Babylon. It was like oxygen. He just couldn't stop breathing for 30 days. And that's the way Daniel felt about prayer. Prayer was the means by which he depended upon God so much so he couldn't conceive of 30 days without it, which, of course, begs the question. 
If we were not allowed to pray for 30 days, would it be unbearable for us too? For many Christians, the answer is no. Because they perceive prayer as an option to be exercised or an opportunity to receive benefit instead of a necessity to live. They don't see it as oxygen. And for Daniel, so necessary to live that he was willing to what? Die for it in alliance. And so what does Daniel do? Well, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem three times a day. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. In other words, he didn't change his habit of prayer because of Darius's 30-day edict. He always prayed on his knees. He always prayed three times a day. He always prayed through windows open towards Jerusalem. Nothing changed. The edict changed nothing for him. But why did he pray towards Jerusalem? Well, the answer is found in a prayer that King Solomon prayed years before this when the temple that he built in Jerusalem was finally finished and they were dedicating it. And and he prayed this long prayer. It starts out with basically, God, you're so great, there's no way a temple could contain you. But nonetheless, we recognize this is the place you have chosen to meet with your people, to manifest your presence to your people. And he goes on, he keeps on praying, keeps on praying, and then towards the end of the prayer, he prays this. And God, if, if there ever comes a time when your people stray from you so much that they are disciplined by being exiled in a foreign land, that God, you would hear their prayer of repentance and forgive them when they turn towards the land you gave our ancestors, towards the city you have chosen, and towards the temple that you had built. Daniel was just doing what Solomon prophetically prayed centuries earlier. He was following that. He was praying for the people of God by turning back to the place where God's covenant had been established with them. Daniel turned towards the temple in Jerusalem in prayer, not as some kind of rabbit's foot, but because it was a symbol of God's covenant promises. You know, we do the same thing when we pray in Jesus' name. Because of our covenant promises, are, are no longer found in a physical structure or a place or a building. They're found in a person, Jesus Christ. He is the new temple of God. And that's what we mean when we pray in Jesus' name because we are in covenant with God through his death and his, his resurrection. And even though in the day that Daniel prayed, the temple in Jerusalem was in ruins because the Babylonians had just destroyed it, it was still the place that symbolized God's covenant promises, promises that included discipline and captivity for rebellion, but also liberation and freedom for the repentant. Well, in verse 11, it tells us these men, after finding this out, went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. 
And so they went to the king, and then they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to a god or a human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, notice the contempt here. He's actually their boss. One of those Jews, Daniel had to put up with that anti-Semitism his entire life. He pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you, you put into writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly, did you notice this? I just saw this. He still prays three times a day. Everyone knew about Daniel. Everybody knew he was a man of prayer. They already knew this. They didn't discover this. That's why they could entrap them, because he had a reputation as a man of prayer. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. And notice this. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Now, when it says these men went as a group, the idea here is not only referring to their number, but to the fact that these men were conspiring as a group. Their charge was twofold. Daniel doesn't listen to you, and Daniel's paid no attention to your latest decree. Charges they supported by their own eyewitness testimony, apparently. They had waited an entire day within earshot of Daniel's window to hear him pray three times, and they actually heard what he was praying. He's saying, they said he was praying for help from his God. And upon hearing this report, Darius realized that he had been used as a part of a vendetta against his best best employee. Throughout that entire day, he tried to come up with a way, some way, some loophole in the law where he could save Daniel's life. Unfortunately, the decree could not be reversed under Persian law. And at this point, the conspiracy ramps up even more. Verse 15, then the men went as a group to King Darius. Now, this is at the end of the day. It said, remember your majesty. I mean, these guys are just evil. That according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continue to rescue. This was a real hope for Daniel at this point. He wasn't being sarcastic, like, ah, let's see God save you now, right? No, he was really hoping for this. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the, the den, And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice. Why? Because he didn't expect him to be alive. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And to his surprise, I mean, this must have been a shock. It's like he didn't expect this at all, all right? 
And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. I mean, I would have fallen over at that point. And then he says, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouth, mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. And nor have I ever done anything wrong before you. I'm innocent before heaven and earth. The king was overjoyed. And he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God at the king's command. This is usually where the story ends in children's church. <laughs> at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones, just in case you think that Daniel spent the night in there and the lions were full. <laughs> Two things to consider here. First, Daniel is rescued from the lion's den, but Daniel's conspirators and their families are thrown into it. And that's because in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for family members of a, of a guilty family member who's committed high crimes against the government. It was not uncommon for the whole family to experience the same judgment in order to send a message. According to ancient historian Herodias, this custom was very much a part of Persian law. I mean, the ancient world was a brutal place. You better be glad you were born in the modern world. Secondly, Daniel is released from the lion's den by an angel. But did you notice that it didn't say just an angel? Did you notice that when we read that? He says, my God sent his angel into the lion's den. And it's likely, very much so, that this was the same angel who went into the fiery furnace to rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego many years earlier. And just like they came out of the fiery furnace without the smell of smoke, Daniel came out of the lion's den, what? Without a scratch on his body. Now, the unusual thing about this angel is that he does not save from the outside. He doesn't save from the outside of the furnace. He doesn't save from the outside of the lion's end. He could have saved them from the outside, of course. There are all kinds of ways he could have done that, striking the guards dead, causing an earthquake, sinkhole. I mean, we could just go on. There's all kinds of ways to, to deliver the three Hebrew children from the fiery furnace or Daniel from the lion's den, but he doesn't. He doesn't deliver them from without. He doesn't exercise power to deliver from without. He goes in. Do you notice that? He goes in. Why? Well, because this is a unique angel of the Lord. Who we learned earlier in this series is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. And Jesus does not deliver from the outside. Jesus goes in to deliver. He went into the fiery furnace of God's wrath to bear our judgment. He went into the lion's den of God's wrath and was sacrificed in our place to bear the penalty of our sin. 
so that we can say boldly, there is no more condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he went in. He took our place. He didn't deliver from without. He delivered by going in. So the angel of God, the angel of the Lord saves Daniel. And just like that, the whole plot comes to an end. It began with Darius assuming the place of God. It ends with with Darius reverencing the one and only living God. It began with a royal decree based upon lies. It ends with a royal decree based upon the truth. Then King Darius, verse 25, wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language of all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever, and his kingdom will not be destroyed, and his dominion will never end. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Yes, he did prosper, didn't he? But he also, also suffered greatly. In spite of all the highlights, and those are the ones we read, there are also many lowlights in Daniel's life. He lived a life I don't think any of us in this room would ever choose. As a young man, his home was destroyed by a conquering army. The cornerstone of his faith, the temple, was pillaged and torn down. He was ripped from his family, enslaved, relocated in a foreign pagan land, a land that was the very moral opposite of his homeland. He was probably castrated and made a eunuch. Most commentaries and historians believe that to be the case, that he was a eunuch who served under Nebuchadnezzar, quite common. But even if he wasn't, regardless, he never experienced the fulfillment of marriage. He never experienced the joy of having children. He lived among the vile. He was indoctrinated into their ways by force. He was subjected to a great deal of unfair treatment. He had, for the most part, very horrible bosses. He was often alone. And more often than not, he stood alone because of his commitment to God. He never returned home. He died in the kingdom of Persia, formerly Babylon. But in spite of all his suffering, and maybe because of that and the way that he faced that suffering, he was an extraordinary man. That's what verse 3 tells us. We see this all over the first six chapters, but... Darius here says it just like that. He he has extraordinary capabilities. He has an excellent spirit. And that excellent spirit was manifested in these qualities. He was humble, prayerful, thankful, trustworthy, faithful, honest, above reproach. He was consistent. He was merciful. He was, he was forgiving. There was no inconsistency in this man between his belief and between his practice. In other words, 
the one word that kind of summarizes Daniel is integrity. He had integrity. And that's the thing that is very much missing from the modern church. Many claim Jesus, not as many live like him. Dozens and dozens of studies over the last 30 years involving hundreds of thousands of people have over and over and over come to the same conclusion. That people who identify, that the lives of people who live, or that the lives of people who identify as Christians differ very little from the lives of those who do not. Now, why is that? Integrity. Of course, my take on that is there's a lot of people who identify as Christians that aren't really Christians. Apparently, they didn't poll anybody at Grace Family Church. (laughs) And they're not Christians because they don't understand the gospel. And the reason they don't understand the gospel is because they don't understand why they need the gospel. How can you understand the gospel unless you understand why you need it in the first place? I don't go to the medicine cabinet unless I realize I have a cut. I've got to see what my condition is in order to apply the salve. The same thing is true with the gospel. We have to see who we are and what we are outside of Christ and what sin has done for us and the the sinfulness of sin in the face of a holy God and the most righteous thing that God could have ever done was to condemn us to eternal judgment, but he didn't. His son became one of us to die on a cross to take that judgment in our place. And there is the glory of the gospel and the entire fuel for the Christian life and the energy to pursue Christ-like character and integrity in this life so that what we believe is matched by how we live. That's the fuel. That's the energy. That's where it comes from. It comes from weeping over the gospel. It comes by considering the cross and being moved by it melting you. Does the gospel melt you? Are there times when you hear of Christ's love and forgiveness and grace and what you deserved and what you got and it just, it melts you? See, that's what it does to Christians. It melts us. It's not just an ideology or a philosophy we embrace as a better way to live. It is the salvation of our very souls and the transformation of our character. So I would say the great problem lies with the pastors and with the churches who are afraid to teach why we need the gospel. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We need another righteousness And by the grace of God, it comes through Jesus, who not only died on the cross to bear the penalty of Jeff's sin, but before he did that, he lived a perfect life, never sinned once, perfectly obeyed the law of God, and when I believe in him, not only do I get the forgiveness he purchased, I get the merits of his perfectly lived life credited to me. I become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so does every other believer. His rightness becomes our rightness before God.
But even, I think, among born-again Christians, there is a, a lack of integrity between belief and, and practice. You know, when we say, like, a house has integrity, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean, you know, that every part of that house, that structure, is equally solid, right? Not only is the foundation solid, the footers, the concrete floor, so are the walls that stand on that. So are the headers over the windows and the doors. So are the floor joists, if it's a two-story. So are the rafters. So is the roof. It's all solid. We look at it and we go, that home has structural integrity. See, when we say a house has integrity, we mean it not only appears solid from the street, but that upon close inspection, it's actually solid in all of its construction. It's built right. See, that's Daniel. Dotted all his eyes, crossed his T's. Daniel had integrity, which was revealed then, see, in humility and consistency and faithfulness. It's seen in his habit of prayer, his thankful attitude, his mercy towards his oppressor and so many other, other qualities. And these are the very qualities the Bible teaches us, the New Testament teaches us, that become more and more ours in increasing measure as the gospel takes deeper and deeper root in our heart and reveals things that we can't see, reveals the hidden idols of our hearts or things that we are actually trusting more than we are the gospel to provide our happiness and joy. We don't even see them. But as we go deeper and deeper in our understanding and application, God, the Holy Spirit, begins to reveal those things to us. And since we know that we are unconditionally accepted by God and that nothing can separate us from His love, we're not afraid to repent, to identify those things and repent. The saddest thing in the world is a Christian who's been basically the same for 10 years. That's sad. There should never be a point in our life where we just kind of level off and ride out the rest of life. Every day the sun rises. Every day there's a new possibility to have the Spirit work in your life to bring about more Christ-likeness and more peace and more joy and a greater sense of purpose. Every day. So we don't have to make excuses. We don't have to get offended. Right? We don't, we don't have to remain in denial. Because why? Well, we're free to allow the Spirit to apply the gospel to the deep sins and wounds in our hearts so that daily, by the stripes of Jesus, we are being healed. It's a lifelong process, folks. And through this gradual transformation, this process of repentance and faith, you know what the Spirit begins to do? He begins to push out the characteristics of Christ through the limbs of our life so that fruit begins to form on the end of the branch. And who is fruit for? The trunk? It's for others. The fruit is for others. The fruit is not just so you can say, I have love, peace, joy, long-suffering, faithfulness, kindness, meekness. No, it's to be a billboard. And, 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 and if you have that in your life, consistently, man, that is like a blinking billboard to the world because the world lacks these qualities so much. It's so 
anti-Christ. You can't help but be seen. God intends to use that fruit to reveal himself as the living God. That's just what Daniel did. That's what Daniel did his whole life. I mean, there's nobody that knew Daniel, no king, no satrap, no administrator, no astrologer, no wise man, no nobody. There wasn't a person who didn't know about the nature and character of Daniel's God, that he was the living God. Because why? Daniel did not privatize his faith. He lived it out. And it's sometimes, of course, with great cost. We are Christ's disciples. And if we follow him, we will become more like him. There's just no option to that. If we follow him, we will become increasingly, progressively more like him. If we're not, then we are not following him. So Daniel's life reveals the effect of a God-transformed life, the effect that it has on others. But Daniel's life, now we're going to get to the really good part. Daniel's life reveals what empowers that lifelong transformation. Where does the power come from for that kind of transformation? You know, it occurred to me when I was just reading through this chapter of all the extraordinary qualities of Daniel's life that they weren't just something that, you know, manifested at the end of his life after he had matured into a mature faith. These qualities were a part of his life from day one, from chapter one, from the beginning of this story, from the moment he was selected to be trained to be in Nebuchadnezzar's court, from that first moment in chapter one to this moment that he was vindicated by God and released from the lion's den in chapter six, Daniel exhibited exceptional qualities, an excellent spirit. And as I began thinking about it, I read the whole thing, you know, we haven't come across a place where Daniel messed up. You know, you read through the, the Bible and the other characters of the Bible, I don't care, we start with, you know, Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all the way through. You know, you read, and there'll be moments of great faith, but then there'll also be moments, what? Of great failure, of great flaws, right? Every one of those guys, you can hear their name, and instantly you think of their flaw. But when you come to Daniel, where's the flaw? All you see is what? An excellent spirit. Why? Because Daniel's life, the life of Daniel, is about more than Daniel. Daniel wasn't an exceptional man, but he was also the foreshadowing of the most excellent man, the ultimate Daniel. And that clicked with me last week. When I was reading the middle of this passage, Daniel's cast in the lion den, and verse 17 says, and a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. And I went to myself, I've read that somewhere before. Doesn't that have ring a bell? It has something to do with Jesus. The stone rolled over the tomb, sealed with the signet, and then all of a sudden it went to a this all kind of started happening. I was seeing all these, these comparisons here. I saw Daniel is presented in Scripture to be a picture or a foreshadowing 
of the greater Daniel, Jesus Christ. Because like Daniel was framed and falsely charged by the Persian administrators, so Jesus was framed and falsely charged by the religious leaders of his day. Like Daniel was arrested while praying in a private place, so Jesus was arrested while praying in a private place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Like Darius worked for Daniel's release, Pilate tried to get Jesus released because like Darius knew that Daniel was an innocent man, Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. And like Daniel, Jesus was turned over to the authorities to be executed. And like Daniel was silent before his accusers, Jesus, like a lamb before his shearers is silent, opened not his mouth. But next comes the way that the narrative of Jesus and Daniel are different. Daniel was innocent, vindicated, and emerged without a scratch on his body. Jesus was infinitely innocent, but condemned, and his body had a few scratches on it. He was beaten. He was scourged. He was lacerated. He was punctured and put to death and buried. Psalm 22 prophetically reveals the crucifixion from Jesus' perspective. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Roaring lions tear, that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garments. It's easy to see that that's talking about Jesus on the cross. The only part of it that may not be as familiar is, is the lion's part. In the New Testament, we often associate a roaring lion with Satan who goes about like a, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But in the Old Testament, roaring lions were symbolic of the administration of justice, judgment, including God's justice. The very beginning of the book of Amos, it says, the Lord roars from Zion when he measures out his justice. And that's just exactly what he did to Jesus on the cross. His justice roared out against his own son as Jesus bore the judgment that our sin deserved. The ultimate Daniel, Jesus Christ, entered the ultimate lion's den for us. And he was torn by the justice of God for us. And he died for us. And he rose from the dead for us. And because he did, we can go into the little lion's dens of our lives with confidence, knowing that God is for us and that nothing will ever separate us from his love. But then the comparison continues. Like Darius ran to the lion's den the next morning, Peter and John ran to the tomb of Jesus. Like the stone that sealed the lion's den was removed, so too the stone that sealed Jesus' grave. Like Daniel was lifted out of the lion's den in the morning, Jesus was raised from the dead Sunday morning. But unlike Daniel, 
who did not have a scratch, the greater Daniel still bears scars on his hands, feet, and side to prove his love for us. And unlike Daniel, who lived but eventually succumbed to death, Jesus died but three days later, rose from the dead, and lives forevermore. And because of that, Daniel and every other person who calls on the name of the Lord will live forevermore. And that's the gospel. One book, one story, one hero, Jesus Christ. If you've never believed, truly, you've never understood until this morning why you need the gospel, what the gospel is. You've never heard it before, but now you have. Now you know. And you go, I want that. I want that this morning. I want to mark a point in time where I believe that, where I profess that. What better place than with the family of God right here, right now? So let's do that together. Let's make that profession of faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. I believe, let's say it, I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sin, and that he rose from the dead to make me right with God. I have turned from my old life. I've repented from sin. I am trusting in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'd like... Um, as we stand, I'd like our prayer team to come up. If you need prayer for anything this morning, or you want to talk to somebody about praying that prayer, we'll be up here for about 15 minutes after the service. Everybody else, if you have a moment, hang out in fellowship. If not, safe travels. We'll see you next week.